0: Today we're in the series Living Between Two Kingdoms. This is part two in the series, entitled this part is Your Greatest Concern. And uh, turn please to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. My sources include D. Martin lloyd Jones's book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, John R. W. Stott's book, The Message of the Sermon on the Mount, a book by John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, a book by Bruce Larson, Believe and Belong, and a message by Brian Wilkerson, Finding Financial Freedom. The Sermon on the Mount uh, is at the place, or the Mount of Beatitudes, where uh, Don and I had the chance to visit uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And so imagine Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you read it through, if you just read it through, it's 18 minutes. And don't expect an 18-minute sermon from me, but uh, Jesus was a lot more of a master sermon deliverer, so uh, yes, uh, 18 minutes. And uh, powerful stuff that he talks about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Last week we were in Matthew 6, again we're in Matthew 6, and I'll start reading at verse 25. So please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Two kingdoms. What are the kingdoms about? The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And so we're living between these two kingdoms. What does that mean to us? Matthew six. Listen to what Jesus said in verse twenty five. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? But the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this word. I need this word. And I know many of my brothers and sisters in Christ need this word. So bless us all, Lord, that we might take this word to heart. So help us to unpack this, I pray. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The question that I have thought of for 40 plus years since I became a Christian is this question. What's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? What's the difference between a Christian and what Jesus calls a pagan? What's the visible, tangible difference between a Christian and a pagan? Researcher, pollster George Barna says that America is, quote, a nation comfortable with religion, but not particularly committed to spiritual growth. Other experts agree that as far as the uniqueness of the behavior of Christians as compared with pagans, there is little observable difference. So tell me, what is it that separates you and me, those of us who claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who do not believe? I want you to think about that. We'll return to it. Someone once said there are three ways to go through life. Number one, you can spend your life. Number two, you can waste your life. Or number three, you can invest your life. How are you doing with that? These last two weeks, I've tried to make the point that life is to be lived for the glory of God. If you remember the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, I've tried to make the point that life is to be lived, as we live in these two kingdoms, is to be lived for the glory of God. And if you're not already doing this, I'm convinced that God wants you to invest your life to make your mark in this world. In our text, Jesus points out to us that it's the basic essentials of life that seem to always get in the way. Jesus says that if you want to follow him, then your life should be, by the grace of God, Lived in such a way to reflect his values. And the question of the day is, how do you do that? How do you do that? Our text explains several ways of how we can reflect the values of Jesus by his grace. So the first one is this, by not worrying, by not worrying about the basic essentials of this world. Look at verse 27. Are you a a worrier? I can be. I can be. What about you? you? Are you a worrier? Do you think about things a little too much? Look at verse 27. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Is that practical wisdom or what? Jesus says that worrying is actually counterproductive to our faith. And he says there are two things that we worry about that we should not worry about. What were those two things? Number one, what we'll eat or drink. Or number two, what we'll wear. So what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. Those are the things that we worry about. And Jesus says don't worry about these things. But we do worry about these things, don't we? To the point that we can stress ourselves out over these basic essentials. Now, in the last verse of the text, verse 34, Jesus mentions two words. Two words. Today and tomorrow. All worry is about tomorrow. But when do we worry? Today. If you're anxious... You are upset today about something, maybe some event or some potential situation at work or or whatever, which may happen in the future. Sometimes somebody has probably said to you, hey, don't worry about it. It'll probably never happen. And that may sound callous, but it's actually great advice. The experts tell us that most of our fears will never materialize. So if worry is a waste of time and thought and nervous energy, then why do we do it? According to Jesus, it's because we have not yet learned to live one day at a time. Let's look at verse 34 again. Therefore, Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Great advice. Now, to be free from worry and to be free from trouble are are not really the same thing. So even though God clothes the grass of the field, it is still cut down and burned. And when speaking of his protection of sparrows, a little bit later in the book of Matthew, if you just turn from Matthew a few chapters over to chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. So the promise is not that they wouldn't fall, but that they wouldn't fall without God's knowledge and God's consent. You know, several of my sources have passed on, including Bruce Larson, the late pastor and author. Bruce Larson was was really wonderful. And in his book, Believe and Belong, he explains that for many years he worked in New York City and from time to time he would counsel people At his office, who were struggling with worry, who were struggling with worries and the basic essentials, you know, the stresses of life. He said he figured out a way to paint a picture for these folks, how a believer should respond in the face of stress and worry. He said he'd take them from his office downtown to the RCA building on Fifth Avenue in New York City. He said in the entrance to that building is a gigantic statue of Atlas, You know, Atlas, the beautifully proportioned man who, with all of his muscles straining, is holding the world on his shoulders. He said, there he is, the most powerfully built man in the world, but he can barely stand up under the strain of holding up the world. So Larson would say, now, that's one way to live, if you want to live that way, trying to carry the world on your shoulders. And then he would take his his companion across the street to the other side of Fifth Avenue to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And there behind the high altar is a little shrine of the boy Jesus, who's about eight or nine years old. And with no effort, the boy Jesus is holding the world in his hands. One hand. Larson would then say, you know, we have a choice. We can carry the world on our shoulders or we can say, I give up, Lord. I give up. Here's my life. I give you my world. I give you the whole world. So how do we reflect the values of Jesus? Well, first of all, by not worrying about the basic essentials of this world. If we belong to him, we belong to Christ. He promises to provide for us second way is by trusting God, your Heavenly Father, for those basic essentials. And so, back in the text again, verse 26, Matthew six twenty-six. Look at the birds of the air. And you really should sometimes, just watch the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then skipping to verse 30. Or actually, verse 29, he says, Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothed the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? And look what he says after that. You of little faith. You of little faith. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 37. I've got several favorite psalms. If you'll turn to the Old Testament, to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is a, a beautiful psalm about trust and about not fretting, about those who are evil. It says that, you know, like the grass, they will soon wither, the evil people. Like green plants, they'll soon die away. It says, trust in the Lord, do good, dwell on the land, and take delight in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Another favorite verse of many people. And then look at verse 25. It's a great verse. Just right in the middle of this Psalm. I was young and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children baking bread. Powerful verse. Which leads me to tell you a story I've told you before. A man tells the story of taking his young son to McDonald's. He says he ordered him a large fry. I want to tell you, the first thing that we wanted to do when we got back from Israel was to eat French fries. And so I go to get the, the lemonade, and Donna goes and gets the fries. And uh, we're at the airport in Atlanta, and uh, oh boy, I could not wait. You know, these comforts of life, right? And she gets fries with cheese and bacon. Now, we never eat fries like that, but we did that day. So I can really relate to this kid, you know. He, he gets this large fry and he sits down. You know how good they taste. I'm sorry, McDonald's fries are the best. Um especially when you're hungry. He says that as soon as he and his son sat down, he's watching his son eat his fries and then all of a sudden he just kind of instinctively reached over and grabbed one of the, the kid's fries and ate one. And then his son slapped his hand. He said, Dad, you can't have any of these. These are my fries. The man said three thoughts immediately went through his mind. The man said, number one, I realized that my son had forgotten I am the source of his fries. I'm the one who brought him to McDonald's. I'm the one who walked up to the counter and ordered the fries, then paid for the fries with my own money. My son has forgotten that without me, he would have no fries. I am the source of his fries. Number two, I realized my son had forgotten that I control the fries. I control the fries. I could take them away instantly and say, all right, that's it. No more fries for you. On the other hand, if I wanted to, I could buy him a truckload of fries. I could bury him in fries if I wanted to because I have the means to do it. Three, I realized my son had forgotten that I I don't need his fries. I can go up to the counter just as easily and buy myself some of my own fries. But what I really want is my son to learn to be unselfish. You know what? Those are three very important lessons. And if you have the outline in front of you, fill in these blanks. Number one, these three important lessons that God wants us to learn from this story is number one. God is the source of all that you have, of all that I have. God is the source of it. Number two, God is the controlling agent in all that I have or might have. And then number three, God does not want or need my stuff. He just wants me to be willing to part with it. That's why the scriptures use the language of stewardship when it talks about our resources. A steward is a manager. It's a person who manages someone else's property. And if you're a steward of all the things that you have, from a biblical standpoint, that means that everything you have belongs to God. And you're to live each day remembering the fact that it's not your stuff. It's not your stuff. It's God's stuff. So how are we to reflect the values of Jesus by, number one, not worrying about the basic essentials of life? Number two, by trusting God, your Heavenly Father, with those essentials. And then number three, by putting Christ first. By putting Christ first as a visible demonstration of your stewardship. Now, verse 33 is probably one of the most well-known verses in this passage. So look at it again with me. Matthew six thirty-three. We sing this verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. So we sing this verse. You know this verse. Seek his kingdom first and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So how do you do that? How how do you put Christ first? It's easy to say, Christ is first in my life. How, How do you do that? Well, turn back to the Old Testament, not to Psalms this time, but this time to Proverbs. Proverbs. You know, Proverbs is a great, great book. Our youth director has been teaching Proverbs this year to students. And it's a great, great book to learn if you want to learn wisdom. So look at Proverbs twenty-one, or actually I tell you what, I'm going to save that for a little bit later. Let's do Proverbs twenty through twenty-four. Let's go to twenty-four, verses three and four. Proverbs twenty-four, three and four. The Bible says, by wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful truths. So think about those three. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. And when it comes to God's provision and the basic essentials of life, you need all three. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. In fact, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge are the makings of a good financial plan. And there are three things that should be a part of your financial plan if it is to demonstrate that you trust God. Stay in Proverbs. I'm going to come back to it in a moment. Here's three things that should be a part of your financial plan. Number one, give your money. Give your money. Now, LifeWay Research has brought forward this statistic and these statistics, and and I want to share them with you. It's a little disturbing. It says, among Americans with evangelical beliefs who attend a Protestant church like this monthly or more, among those they surveyed who attend a church like this monthly or more, 75% agree God wants to prosper me financially. Seventy five percent of those attendees agree God wants me to prosper financially. Is that what the scripture teaches? You know, the prosperity gospel has done more damage throughout the world than probably any gospel. And there are televangelists that preach the prosperity gospel, not only in this country, but you know where else they preach it? The continent of Africa. It's huge in the continent of Africa. How sad. Did you know that 50% of the world lives on $2.50 a day? 50% of the world. Did you know that 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day? And so, as we sit here this morning, I hope there's a sobering reminder to each of you, as it is to me, we are wealthy. We are all wealthy. All you have to do is travel to another place in the world to see that. 75% agree God wants to prosper me financially. 41% agree, according to this research, that if I give more dollars to God, God will bless me in return. Almost like he's obligated. That's not what scripture teaches. 26% agree to receive material blessings from God. I have to do something for God. See, all these really trouble me because all of these don't sound like scripture to me. You're to give your money because God has said, I own it all. And I want you to give your money as a testimony that you trust me that I own it all and that I will provide for you. It's a statement of faith to give. So give your money is the first step in a financial plan. I was taught years ago when I was struggling with this whole thing of giving that you give the first fruits. That was what the Old Testament word was. Give the first fruits, the best of your crops. Of course, the Bible is in an agricultural environment. And so they would bring the best of their crops to the Lord. So that means the first fruits would be your beginning of your paycheck, not the leftovers of what's left when you have spent it all. Second part, though, of a good financial plan is not only give your money, but secondly, save your money. Save your money. Twenty years ago, the average household income saved an average of 10%. Last year, the average household in America saved about 1% of their income. Most people in the United States, in fact, half of all Americans, have nothing put away for retirement because they've not disciplined themselves to save. Maybe living, living, you know, higher than they should. Um, The principle of finance is what? You you have to have more coming in than going out right and and so as a result 50% of americans have nothing put away for retirement 35% 35% have only several hundred dollars in savings and so let's go back to proverbs let's do proverbs 21 now and let's read a couple of verses in proverbs 21 Verse 5, let's look at verse 5 first. The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. So, you better make your plans and plan to save. And then look at verse 20. The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. It's just great wisdom here about making sure that you save. And I know that's not easy in this culture we live in. It's hard to, to to not live above your means. But we need to save money for that rainy day down the road or for retirement, whatever it may be. Then the third part of a good financial plan is to spend your money, which we're pretty good at that, right? <laughs> spend your money. All right, I, I can do that. Um, in all these three categories, there's a reason for the order. There's no such thing as a formula for financial freedom, and I'm certainly not an expert, but the 10-10-80 plan comes about as close to anything of being a good financial plan. And what is the 10-10-80 plan? It's you give the first 10% to God, then the second 10% to yourself, which is the saving part, and then you live on 80%. You say, there's no way I could do that. And I understand that. I'm convinced that if you want to begin to demonstrate the ownership principle that God is the owner of all you have and that you're simply a steward, then you give first, not last. Now, 10% giving and 10% saving may not work for you right now. And I understand that. If that's the case, pick a percentage, pick a percentage, stick with it, and then grow from there. The late Peter Marshall, if you heard that name, Peter Marshall, a very famous preacher in the last century. He was chaplain of the U.S. Senate, and uh, he was a very godly man, a great preacher. A man once came to him after he preached on tithing, and he says, I can't afford to tithe. Peter Marshall's response was, he stopped right there and prayed for the man and said, Father, reduce this man's salary back to what he can afford to tithe got the man's attention. So why is giving to God so important? Well, for one thing, it does demonstrate the ownership principle. It also is obeying God's word because all through scripture, it says God wants us to give. He wants us to be cheerful givers. But there's a byproduct to that. Actually, in the process, you're promoting the gospel of Christ and showing the world that when you put him first, there is a visible difference. It's not the only visible difference, but it's a very important visible difference between those who belong to the kingdom of God and those who do not. You understand this could all be taken away from you. And so two things stand out when you do put Christ on the throne of your life in terms of your stewardship, in terms of your giving. Number one, the world can see that Christ is your treasure. That Christ is your treasure. And then the second thing, the world can see that Christ is your hope. Christ is your hope. It's a passage of Scripture in the New Testament that we're going to read now. It's the verse of the week, 1 Peter 3, verse 15. And so look at your uh, outline, please. Beneath the outline is the verse of the week. We're going to read this out loud together. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts revere, that is set apart, Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And a lot of what I see in our text this morning is a commitment between two competing alternatives that clamor for our attention. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. In a couple of weeks, in fact two weeks from this day... It is Stewardship Commitment Sunday, two weeks from today. And uh, you may have gotten a letter from me in the mail this weekend. I hope you did. It had one of those cards there. This is a wonderful week to be thinking about your commitments as a steward to God. Because we're all managers. And the Bible says very clearly we will be accounting, giving an account of how we have managed our property. Which is not ours, but God's. So here's my question as we close up today. When was the last time someone asked you to explain to them the reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? When was the last time someone asked you to explain to them the reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? I think it's a fair question because on a whole, I think it's safe to say that if you haven't been asked that question before, it could be that that's because you look As if the hope that you have is in the very same things as your non-Christian friends. If you've embraced the gospel of Jesus, then your values should match up with Jesus's values. In fact, Jesus's values, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, it ought to be your primary and your greatest concern. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, your word, and thank you for how you provide for us. We in this country are so blessed, and we know, Lord, it's because your hand has been upon this country. So we pray for our country. We pray that you would keep the eyes of this land upon you, Lord, knowing that you are the source of the many blessings that we receive each and every day. That honestly, if we were honest before you today, we would say we take those for granted. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this week, this week of Thanksgiving. I pray for everyone in this place this morning. On the eve of Thanksgiving Day. That you will remind us that you want us to have a grateful heart. And to live with a grateful heart. Because of all that we've been given which has come from your hand. Thank you for being our source. Thank you for being the controlling agent in all that I have. And may I, Lord, be a steward, a good manager of what you've entrusted to me. I pray that for my brothers and my sisters in Christ. And I pray for anyone here that does not understand this. They're outside of your kingdom. They haven't embraced your gospel. I pray that you would touch their hearts and let them know. How much you have given to them. And I pray that you would speak to their heart, Lord. Lead them to trust you today as their source and as their Savior. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.